Your ears do not deceive you. You have just entered the Cryptid Creator Corner brought to you by your friends at Comic Book Yeti. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview. Hey Yeti, what's shaking? Yeah, I did see that Mechatel was crowdfunding on Kickstarter now. I love that book. I was in backer for the single issues myself. That whole creative team is great. I love Fernando Pinto's artwork, and it reminds me so much of hanging out with my friends in middle school and playing Nintendo, well, minus the giant mutant bugs from outer space swooping in and trying to take over part. Wait, you can make a transformation sound? Who knew? Yeah, that power gauntlet is cool. Whatever Derek touches can transform him into an alien annihilating mech. Even a hot dog cart, too. Too funny. Where can people go to back it? They can head on over to Kickstarter and search for Mechaton, M-E-C-H-A-T-O-N, or just check the show notes. I'll make it easy for them. It runs all of February, and it's awesome that everything is done and looks like a really quick turnaround for backers. And that exclusive Jason Muir cover is awesome. He's doing Spider-Man stuff now. Did you just really say Fuyo? You gotta get off TikTok, man. This is Brian O'Neill, your host for today's episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner. As we continue to celebrate our two-year anniversary as a comics interview podcast in the month of February, I'm delighted to introduce one of the top writers in the game on me, with me today to discuss his new, unique, neo-noir crime drama writing collaboration with fellow White Noise Studio Comics Collective member Dan Waters. One hand, six fingers, dropping in February from Image Comics. Ram V, thanks for carving out a little time to chat with me today. Yeah, How's yeah, going? pleasure. Great. Yeah, I mean, the issue one of one hand just came out yesterday, so uh, it's nice to see people's reactions to it. Uh, our One of our big concerns was whether people were going to pick up on the fact that it's two connected narratives, because uh, we didn't really go out of our way to, to highlight that. And uh, it's great to see... The joy there is in people picking up a book and and putting those pieces together themselves. So um, yeah, it's been great. Yeah, I talked to my uh, local LCS shop owner last night, actually on Twitter, to kind of see how it was selling. He said it's doing really well, so that's always good to hear. Yeah, yeah, great. Uh, yeah, very happy to hear that. Um, and yeah, you know, uh, not not always a always an easy pitch to make in terms of like grounded crime noir as a comic because there's so many that have come before and I feel like we're in a we're in an age of big bombast and not necessarily quiet slow burn yeah um, but yeah no it's great to 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 see people recognizing the fact that this book is trying to do something with the comics format with the medium that I don't know why but people haven't done before so yeah yeah, yeah. i don't know why either after after yeah. i read through i was like okay why hasn't anybody done this well yeah. let's let's get into it so we have one hand six fingers i can't say i've seen anything quite like it you know it's a kind of an ambitious bit of visual storytelling for those who have no idea what's going on here there will be two separate five issue miniseries of this neo-noir crime drama Rama's is writing one dan is writing the other Rama's working with artist Lawrence Campbell on one hand. Dan is working with artist Subit Kumar on six figures. They're uh, they're sharing overlapping creative teams with um, Lee Luffridge on coloring duties and letterer extraordinaire Aditya Bidikar. And Tom Muller is doing the design elements. So, yeah. okay, let's start with how all this thing 
you know, came together? Where'd the idea come from? Uh, the idea, the idea originally came from me reading uh, Cormac McCarthy's Sunset Limited, um, which I don't know how many people have recognized, but it's quite heavily referenced in in the comic itself. Um, there's a now that the issue is out, I feel like I can talk about spoilers, but yeah, um, there's a page with uh, a doomsayer, you know, the kind of crazy person on the street with a message from God, yelling out loud uh, that the world is going to end, but um what he's got on the board and what he is yelling out is paraphrased very much from the conversation that happens in McCarthy's Sunset Limited. Okay. Um, and and yeah, so the book's full of little sort of nuggets and secrets like that. Um anyway, so the idea came to me reading Sunset Limited and then listening to a podcast about post-work societies, about how machine singularity would happen and then machines would make word machines to do all of our jobs and and we wouldn't need to do any anything we didn't want to all, all of humanity would be left to pursue this kind of higher intellect purpose creative calling if you will um and and somehow that has always been presented as a utopian idea um and in my head Putting Sunset Limited and that together created this extremely bleak and dark outcome, which I don't think uh, I had seen discussed anywhere. So I was like, oh, there's a story there because I should tell the story. Um, and I'd always been obsessed with trying to tell the, uh, a story in, in uh, uh, sort of multiple narrative threads. Uh, this has been a hallmark of my work itself, uh, even in like single contained books i've always done multiple narrative threads um and it felt right for this one because it was such a the, the idea that came to me was such a sort of 80s pulp american crime noir detective story it made sense then to take that and refresh it by doing this formalist uh experiment of like okay what if what if we did cat and mouse but we put cat and mouse in two different books mm -hmm. um and so I had this idea at 3.30 or 4 in the morning, uh, and I DM'd Dan, uh, who's a very dear friend, uh, and I said, I have this idea. Uh, do you want to talk about it? And he was like, yeah, are you around now? Do you want to call now? So I called him at like 4 in the morning or something like that, poured ourselves some coffee, and we chatted it out. I mean, we kind of discussed what it needed to be. Uh, I knew that I wanted to write the detective side of the story. Okay. Um, uh, but uh, and I knew and, and therefore Dan was going to take the killer side of it, but I didn't know what the killer side needed to be specifically. So and I didn't want to know. So so even for us writing this project, it's been truly like to think like a detective, to think like a person on the run um, and telling this story at the same time. Um, obviously, the, the beauty of it is it's not just two narratives. You get the two narratives, but then if you read both of them, you get the third truth that lies in between the two narratives because you know each person each protagonist in 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 their own narrative is only seeing the world through their eyes so quite literally the only people who get to see the entire picture are the readers um and so yeah so that's been a that's kind of how all of this came together um it made sense that if we were going to have two separate writers and separate artists doing these books it made sense to tie them together in, in a way 
without necessarily having to tell people, hey, these are tied together. So we got uh, a letterer, colorist, designer, all of them working across both books so that that visual language was maintained even if the writing and the art were changing across two titles. Um, And then the, the sort of final element of the visual chicanery that we were going to do was uh, each issue has one scene that is in common to both narratives. So there's always one scene in every issue that when you read the one hand, you're looking at it from point A. uh, And then the same scene when you're reading The Six Fingers, you will be looking at it from point B, um, which is ideally across the room, if you will. So um, also kind of lends to this kind of really fun idea in a detective story of like, oh yeah, the detective and the killer are right next to each other, but they don't know it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For so, sure. Well, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to have to go back now. I'm a McCarthy fan. Uh, the Road is my favorite book. So I'm like mentally when you said, as soon as you said that, I'm like trying to piece together how this works. I mean, I can obviously see the oppositional viewpoints with with White and Black and Ari and, and Johan. Yeah. Um, they're, they're, they're desperately trying to convince each other. I'm... Having read both of these now, now I got to go back and and try to try to find. Yeah, them. yeah. I mean, I'm not necessarily trying to recreate Sunset right. Limited, but I'm right. I'm taking the thematic sort of philosophical uh, argument and lessons from it, uh, and trying to present a world where we say, what if everything that was discussed in Sunset Limited was indeed true, and if and if we applied it to this. Because a lot of people have come up with like, wait, this is set in the future, 287. This looks nothing like the future. Yeah. In fact, yeah. some, some of the reviews have been like a rare misstep. They've said it's 2873, but it looks more like the 1980s. I'm like, is it a misstep or is it intentional? Dun, dun, yes. dun. So, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I do have a question about that. later. Um, but I did get a chance to read, you know, advanced copies of both stories. It is a mm. really cool experience, I got to say, to see how that shared world overlaps. Um, I highly recommend people pick up both and read them together. And that's coming from a guy who who typically only reads like collected trades. This is a lot of fun. There's a different. Yeah, I mean, uh, also from a creator's perspective, like neither Dan nor I knew that this would work because uh, yes. we hadn't seen it done before. Um, when we finished issue ones, we kind of sent it out to a circle of friends and and people who had no eyeballs on the on the project before that point. And nine times out of 10, you could see someone read issue one and go like, okay, that's cool. Then someone read issue one of the other book. And then you could see in their eyes the moment where they just went, wait, what? Yeah. That was cool. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's what you want. That's what you're looking for as a creator. You know, people keep asking like, oh, what's success for you? Well, success is seeing that moment in somebody's eyes and go like, aha, I gotcha. Well, in creating those two very different characters um, with these two very different writing styles, uh, yours is kind of, to me, it was it felt like a metronome, right? Mm-hmm. Your main character, you know, Detective Ari um, Nasser is methodical. He's driven. You know, he's trying to unravel this mystery behind the one-hand killer who's con- continued to, you know, like haunt the, him for career, like decades in, in this yeah. career as a detective. And then you have Dan's half. You have the archaeology student, Johan Vale. His life is more spiraling, right? He's trying to hold on to these unraveling threads, and the tone is kind of more frantic and impulsive. Mm-hmm. So, so when you're looking at that collaboratively, how did that hash out? Was that kind of like you were writing the script, Dan's writing the script, then you both looked at that, 
and you had to compare notes to see how it would would weave together? No, I think we offset each other by about half an issue. So by the time I had finished half my issue one, Dan would start writing his. And so he had an outline for me for what I was doing in my issue one. Gotcha. And then by the time he had finished his issue one, I'd be starting issue two. And so I would have an outline and some details from him, what he had done in his issue one. So neither of us could plot all the way in advance. Um, And so there was this element of like call and response. Okay, this is what we're doing. Okay, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, and I think that's that's exciting, creatively challenging as well, to because you're not only thinking about your own plot, you're thinking about somebody else's plot and how that plays with or reflects on your own. Um, and yeah, those those writing styles are again very much intentional. Um, Ari, as you as you mentioned at the very beginning of the first issue, says he doesn't mind repetition or tedium uh, as long as it's getting him somewhere. So. The idea that he sees life as this very structured one, two, three, four, five um, thing, uh, it, it makes complete sense. And then on Johannes's part, uh, yeah, this person who is barely holding on to his sense of structure and reality, uh, again, is I think reflected both in dance writing and in Sumit's more open, more freeform art, if you will. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I think that's going to be. It's meant to feel that way. It's meant to constantly keep you off center in terms of, okay, I'm close to someone who is disciplined and and deliberate versus I'm close to someone who is frantic and and manic. Um, To have that done to your own reading each time, but then also to settle into that rhythm, hopefully by the time you get to issue three or four, uh, is is an interesting tool to play with. Uh, and then, you know, because you mentioned some, that you're someone who reads the collected edition, the idea is to collect the whole thing as alternating issues as well. So when we collect, it will be one book with issue one, issue one, issue two, issue two. So you never, you never lose that sense of being constantly wrong-footed, if you will. So what were the pitfalls in, that you discovered in this kind of new collaborative process? Uh, I mean... To be honest, I had a bit more experience with something like this because I'd worked on a book called Blue and Green where Anand and I had had collaborated on the book where I was waiting for Anand to finish art before I, I would write the next part of the issue. And so um, it, it's a question of having faith in yourself to be like, okay, whatever comes my way, I will, I will play with and I will turn it into... Uh, but the pitfall, of course, is it is very nerve-wracking because you're like, I have no idea what's going to come my way for the next issue. Um, and so it does take quite a lot of thought and time to figure out how to, uh, how to write something. And then every choice you make, you may want to make that choice, but it may be detrimental to what's happening in dance book. So right. sometimes you want to do something that's super dramatic and does really well for yours. But then there's that one little thing that that breaks the entire house of cards. So you're like, okay, I guess I can't do that. Um, and yeah, those are those are interesting constraints to have, interesting challenges to have. I think writing in general, storytelling is better when you have constraints and challenges that you're working with. So there's way more of a classic noir feel in one hand in yours, mm-hmm. um, 
kind of despite that future topography, there's cigarettes, dingy mm-hmm. urban setting, grizzled detective. You know, how much how much can you change a detective procedural crime drama before it becomes something else entirely? You know, because there's so many load bearing tropes, if you yeah. will, that are embedded into it as a genre. Yeah, and I, and I think that's great. I think um, certainly as someone who follows a lot of postmodernist writing, um, I thrive on the fact that there are all of these pillars and tropes that uh, that are that are existing. I, I love the fact that there are cliches, so I can take them and have people's expectations kind of structured by them. So that when you get to the point where you subvert those expectations, all of a sudden people go like, wait, I never thought you could do this with this. Um, and I think certainly one of my very early influences was uh, Paul Auster okay. uh, and reading reading City of Glass uh, and New York Trilogy. And that's what he does in New York Trilogy. He takes you know, classic late 80s pulp crime noir stories or American detective stories, and he turns them into, into stories about the search for identity or, or the search for a writer's voice, if you will. Um, and so this is very much a progression in my own endeavor to do something like that. When I started making comics, I, I wrote a comic called Black Mumba, um, which was also very much crime noir. And and the funny part is people don't realize until they've finished reading the book. And I pointed out to them, I was like, there's no actual crime in there. None of the stories have any crime in them. Um, it's just existential noir. But again, that was me trying to take a genre and then subvert its expectations, if you will. All right, let's take a quick break. What in the Sam Hill is happening right now? What is that? Yeah, what is You like bards? Yeah, what is Oh, you like band of bards. It's not my fault, you mumble. That makes sense. They're dropping some great new series right now. There's that one about a heavy metal guitarist in the 1970s with monsters, working class wizards. You know how we love monsters around here. And my friend Dakota Brown, he's working on a project, uh, Grandma Tilly's Hell Tech Mech with Lane Lloyd. I saw the preview for that. That is crazy. Jimmy even contributed to their anthology from the static and had Matt Sumo on the podcast to talk about his project, The Bardic Verses, which... Makes a lot of sense that the project landed there. Where can you find them? You need to get out more. They are in previews, or you can visit their website, bandabars.com, for all the latest. Can we turn the music off now? Thank you. No more surprises. Minstrels or anything like that, or I'll rent you out to the Ren Fair as a children's ride. Let's get back to the show. You alluded to earlier about the some of the reviews with specific to the time period, right? Mm-hmm. So you have Neo Novena as a setting, which rests 800 years and more into the future. So I, I'm a trained anthropologist, like material culture is my jam. This is the mm-hmm. thing that I look for in comics all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so the anticipated march of tech didn't quite pan out as I would have imagined it would. Briefcases, mm-hmm. watches on the hands mm-hmm. um, that actually have hands, desktop mm-hmm. fans, hard copy, all these things. The sleazy sex is there, but these... The, the, the sex workers are robots. So, okay. Mm-hmm. So we had an advancement of sorts. My brain kept coming back to the 1998 movie, Dark City. I don't know if you've seen that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. So the, what was... The movie, the movie that spawned the Matrix, but no one talks about. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> well, that and Baldur Lair's book, of course. But yes. Yes. Um, so what was important 
that, that you can talk about, um, about laying it out in that way in terms of the material culture and not changing things? I, I mean, I would say this. That is part of the truth that you must contend with when you okay. finish reading the entire thing. Uh, when when this was pitched, and even in the in the solicits, it says it's crime noir, but it's also sci-fi. And really, there hasn't been any sci-fi elements outside of, okay, there, there are sex worker robots. Yeah. Um, but outside of that, there haven't been too many sci-fi elements in the story yet. And I think, for me, it's going to be fun seeing at what point do people figure out what's happening with this place. Um, this is a story that says as much about its setting as it does about its characters. Uh, and and I don't think people will, I mean, I don't expect people to understand or realize that until we get to a certain point in the story. Um, but yes, so, so I don't want to say too much more yeah. than that because I think it'll be spoiling things, but sure. we will, we will come back to why that future feels so familiar uh, almost nostalgic, if you will. Okay. Well, it's in stores now, so I think it's fair game to talk a little bit about the one-hand killer. Um, mm -hmm. The thing that makes the killer's MO so fascinating is, is the nature of what they leave behind, which mm -hmm. is sort of always the case. Um, you know, my own artwork taps into universal symbolism, drawing these parallels between, you know, written characters, okay? Mm -hmm. um, and those links, you know, you have cave paintings to present modern-day expressions like graffiti. So, I naturally got a little hooked uh, on all those symbols. Mm -hmm. um, to try to describe it for people who haven't seen it, you can see it on the cover, but the killer leaves a bunch of cube-shaped symbols on the walls, written in the victim's blood, and signs it with a handprint. The pattern immediately made me think of The Matrix, which, which you just talked about, and mm -hmm. that green transition scrolling. Reads like an alphabet, but not one I can associate with an existing language. Mm -hmm. So it's it's very ordered. It's very easy to see why Ari is obsessed with the killer, kind of given his personality. Um, who he also looks like an old John Constantine, by the way. But mm -hmm. I know it's likely integral to the whole damn thing, so you can't elaborate too much on the symbols, but I'd yeah. like to hear about the origin if we can at least talk about their specific importance. Yeah, I mean, um, without giving, again, giving too much away, the intention yeah. was to create something that very much felt like a language, but was so... Um, obtuse that it was indecipherable by anyone who had come across it uh you know they've had this thing with them for for years and i imagine uh, it was left at every murder and at again i don't know if, if this came across in the first issue but there's always a new bit that's added with each murder so it's yeah. grown over time uh, and so you would imagine given cryptology departments someone would have caught on to something but they haven't um and almost to a point where Ari thinks it's pointless trying to trying to decipher this thing. Um, what does that mean? And 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 why is that important? And why is it a language? And and um, the idea that these are symbols and symbols are meant to be stronger than their application in communication. They're meant to be subconscious things. They're meant to be built into the way we perceive the world. Um, I think all of those things, uh, and, and one thing that no one's pointed out, they look like comic book panels as well. So oh, I, I have that in here. <laughs> so, sure. so yeah, yeah. So, so to take that, I think, um, this is also a very design heavy book. So I think we're going to see 
how that starts bleeding into the meta experience of reading something as well. So, yeah. Well, I love the symbols as an artistic expression. Um, there's a frame on it, for God's sakes. You know, mm. I, I had that personal uh, time as a flat circle moment. When, you know, we start leaving handprints and ochre on cave walls. Yeah. And here, here, basically, our killer is doing the same. It's a signature, right? Yeah. It's a hope of being recognized um, in, in terms of the clue. So, And also very interesting because it's a signature that the killer confidently leaves behind, I imagine, also in an era where fingerprinting exists. So yeah. it's, a, it's a killer who is not worried that they're going to find him through his fingerprints, through his identity, if you will. What does that say? Also, I think is an important question um, that we will address. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a fascinating structure when viewed holistically, because um, you've got that that very ordered pattern of symbols that's driving the story that sort of connects these two viewpoints in a very non-linear fashion. Mm. Um, so it, it creates the the stuff that obsession is made out of for for all the comics geeks. Thanks? Question mark. I I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well. We started watching um, Only Murders in the Building as a family recently. My son is 16 before anybody starts judging me. I'm not a true crime junkie, and I've never listened to a podcast along those lines, but I can see the appeal of it to kind of decipher the truth. It's, it's a real mindfuck for people like me who are always looking for Easter eggs and sometimes far more meaning even than the writer may have intended. Mm. Um, this, this, is, this is my paneling question, right? So there are quite a few pages where the paneling in the comic itself mimics that the killer's blood scrawled squared missive. So yeah. I'm curious in terms of, of the collective team, how, how did those duties fall, fall out? You know, how much of the minutia uh, is your script and where do we see kind of Lawrence's flourishes come in? I mean, I think Lawrence's flourishes are uh, in the details, uh, certainly, but also in how things feel. It's very difficult for me to transmit how things will feel on, on, the, on the page uh, when, when they're put down uh, because it's near impossible to direct an artist that way. And you shouldn't because it's a very restrictive way to collaborate with someone. Yeah. Um, but anything that, that is mechanically important to the narrative, like the fact that, okay, these are, these are comic book panels placed in a way that it feels like it's the cipher. Um, that kind of stuff, I think, is so ingrained into the narrative that, that most of that has come from me. Um, but again, it doesn't matter if it comes from me, if it doesn't translate well on the page. So uh, I imagine that's been a challenge for Lawrence to then go, okay, I still have to do good organic storytelling to where I'm not taking the, the reader out of the experience of reading the story, but then I have to thread in this mechanically sometimes awkward uh, interjection that has to be here because it's part of the story. Um, and so finding that balance, I think, is only possible for, a, for an exceptionally uh, thoughtful artist. And I, and I will say Lawrence is a very, very thoughtful artist. Uh, it, the amount of design work that exists in the pages, even in just regular, okay, cool, these are, these are panels. There's nothing meta happening here. But even in the way, okay, where does the shadow, or where does the light from this window fall? Who is it highlighting? Who is inside the light? Who is outside the light? All of that, um, I think there's a lot of thought put into. Uh, and so, yeah, it's been, it's been a joy watching those flourishes come in, Lawrence. 
Yeah, there's a really nice visual moment where the the light from uh, flats that are across the way are reflected um, on the building uh, in front of Ari, and it's mimicking those the the structure of this, the killer's symbols yet again. Yeah. So yeah. really, really nice touches like that you yeah. know, throughout. Yeah. Um, one of the things that was a notable absence was a, a lack of sound. You know, in an, in an urban environment, the book is very quiet which allows for the panels to breathe a bit more, slows things down as, you know, sound tends to throw your eyes around the page. Yeah. Um, and my personal read was, you know, it, it makes Ari, that's much more of a, a unreliable narrator, if you will, you know, as his perspective can't be trusted, you know, with mm. And I don't know why sound sort of seemed to impact that. Maybe it is just the space and you're giving that much more time um, to kind of ruminate. Um, on him as a character. So why was that lack of sound important? I mean, this has largely been part of a bigger artistic idea that that I I have, and then that Aditya, who's a letter on the book, uh, agrees with, is that because sound in comic books is is technically an extra diegetic element, right? Like, it's not, it's not, it's something that you're pasting on top of what is real, if you will. Um, and so you only do it when there is some intentional effect to be had from doing that. Um, otherwise, in general, I like to keep panels quiet. Like the, the sound, a good artist will insinuate sound in their own work. They don't need sound effects to do it. Um, but Let's say I want to insinuate the dread of someone walking across a wooden floor and you don't know who it is. Then I will use sound because the sound of their footsteps is a narrative element that has an impact in that in that way. And so reading that is making the reader dread what's coming with each repeat of that sound effect. So, um, yeah, I feel, I feel like everything in comics is a tool and the more judicially you use it, the more uh, you're using it for intended effect rather than just have it be there as this kind of background element. Um, And as to how that makes you feel about Ari and the world, um, yes, part of that is is very intentional. I think a deliberate person who doesn't mind repetition also surrounds themselves with the kind of of Zen silence that exists, um, if you will. I mean, this is a guy who sat down with a briefcase and clicked one number at a time for hours um those in my experience people who are like that tend to be people who tend to zone out everything else in their periphery um and so because we're so close to Ari, everything that doesn't matter is zoned out uh in a lot of ways and i think that's evident in lawrence's art as well if you if you look at a dimly lit room about 75 percent of that is just black and only the important bits are highlighted because light falls on them. And I think that creates that effect as well. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't know um, if that was necessarily a, a choice born in narrative rather than a choice born out of general idea of how sound should be treated in comics anyway. Okay. Well, I mean, kudos to the whole creative team. You know, I've, I've only read the first issue of both and it's mind boggling the, the amount of necessary synchronicity that kind of needs to happen to, to pull this off. Um, I'm actually going to catch up with uh, Will Dennis, who edited both of these in a week or so. Mm-hmm. Definitely we'll be getting his take on it. So how'd he get 
How did you recruit him in, in this? Well, I had a conversation with Will, I think, at one of the conventions, either San Diego or New York. Okay. Um, and we were we were sat in a in a bar or something, and um, I had al- already met him a couple of times, and I'd wanted to work with him. I didn't tell him this at the time, but Will's like one of my favorite favorite comic book people. Um, even before I knew him, um, when I had learned, just after I had learned to follow creative teams across books, I was in that phase where I was like, okay, okay, I like these books. They're by two separate creative teams, but they still feel like there should be some commonality. And that's when I discovered like, oh, cool. Will Dennis edited all of the books that I really enjoyed um, from that era of Vertigo. Um, and so I've always had tremendous respect for Will, uh, his taste. And so when I went to him, I pitched him this, and his response was, in 22 years of making comics, no one's ever pitched anything like this to me. It's either brilliant or crazy. I guess we'll find out. Uh, okay. And so, um, yeah, no, I, I love that. And I think since then, Will and I have collaborated on multiple things. Uh, and yeah, just an incredible person and and what a joy to be around i don't know that i think maybe you take ex- exception to the word joy but i have weird tastes in people so <laughs> i love i love hanging out with them well would you do say something like this again because i have no clue how you managed to do this given both your and dan's tremendously busy schedule yeah i mean okay this is what you this is what you really get into it this is this is why you do what you do. Uh, I don't, people come and ask me all the time, like, oh, would you like to write a hundred issues of Detective? I'm like, no, like, yeah. why would I just do an aimless meandering kind of, I'm gonna keep doing this however long they'll let me do it kind of run. No, I'd rather do a, fun, here's what I wanted to do, I did it, and now I'm doing the next thing. Yeah. And so uh, I don't know if it'll be this again, but there will be something like this, certainly, again, that tries to push the form, tries to push the, the medium in, in interesting ways. Not because I think like that work is, is better or more important or anything of that sort. More because that kind of stuff is me. And the whole point of quitting a chemical engineering job and, and starting to write comics is to do things that excite me. So, yeah. Well, your website tells me you're a dog person. I'm covered in like memorial tattoos of my dogs. Um, and oh. I always give people a chance uh, to brag on their puppies before before I sign off. So brag on your puppies. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a seven and a half year old Jack Russell Terrier called okay. Ziggy. Um, we we got him when we moved here. I live in Brixton in, in, in London. Uh, and it's uh, it's Bowie, David Bowie's sort of spiritual birthplace. Uh, and so Ziggy from Ziggy Stardust made sense. Um, yeah, just a lovely, lovely, very energetic, very yappy uh, dog um, who is like the gentlest, calmest Jack Russell Terrier I've seen, except when there are foxes in my backyard. So I live in London. London's got a urban fox problem. Uh, and uh, t- uh, Jack Russell Terriers, for those who don't know, were bred as fox hunting dogs. Um, okay. I did not know that. Yeah, so so every time he sees a fox, he it's like, you know, it's like it's like watching someone Hulk out. That just calm, well-behaved dog most of the time, and then there's a fox in the backyard, and he goes absolutely crazy. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, I've always been a dog person. I, I used to have a 
uh, Labrador with me when I was in India. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't sort of fathom the idea of putting him on an airplane for nine hours because yeah. of all the horror stories I hear about transporting dogs on commercial flights. So uh, we had to leave him with my uh, wife's parents, with my in-laws. Um, they've still got him. He's still there. Um, every time I go back to India, I'm kind of attacked by this, I don't know, 50 kilogram giant Labrador. Um, so yeah, I've, yeah I, I love I love animals in general, but I, I love dogs uh, quite a lot. Yeah, nice. Yeah, we just uh, adopted a um, a Vishla mix. We didn't know it at the time, but yes, definitely having a hunting breed is a new experience for us. Um, yeah, yeah. You see, uh, you see, instinct is such a powerful uh, in lane behavioral trigger that you don't expect to see it in in what are for all purposes domesticated animals, and yet there's this sense of like, oh, this is my mortal enemy, and I must change now. Um, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know you have projects dropping fast and furious for you right now. Um, anything specific you'd like to mention before we wrap up? Yeah, I've got um, a mecha kaiju book. Uh, that's also a ghost story romance book uh, dropping from Dark Horse next month. It's called uh, Dawn Runner. It's with artist Evan Cagle and colors by Dave Stewart uh, and letters by Aditya, of course. Um, yeah, another another project that I'm very excited to get into. Another one of these. Um, I know this exists as a genre and it has its cliches, and I'm going to use them to to subvert what you think of that or what you make of it. So um, kind of excited for people to see that. Um, and then you know my my run on detective continues. It, it nears its nears its closing, and then I jump onto a a project at DC that. I've been looking forward to since 2019. Uh, I'm getting to do that thing a lot of writers get into comics to do, certainly ones uh, who took the same influences as I did. So it's taking a obscure character and, and sort of reimagining, reinventing them, um, which is uh, not something a lot of people get to do. So I'm kind of quite excited about uh, the prospect of doing that. It's not been announced yet. Probably will be announced around July or something. So. Okay, very nice. Well, there's a lot of hype about this book. Um, I'll drop the real tea here, quick behind the scenes. So Matt, the head Yeti, basically came out of semi-retirement as a reviewer to cover one hand. I read his review, and we were back and forth about it on Discord. His synopsis was so glowing that it honestly put me off. Um, <laughs> in, in the three years I've known him, I've never seen this much uh, of what I mistakenly perceived of as like fanboy from him. So I was like, man, what? And now that I've got a chance to, to get to read it myself, um, Although we had, you know, very different reads on it, I came to the realization that its impression was dead on. Um, it's it's really one of the most impressive things I've seen done in comics in a long time. I'm now totally fascinated by the Cormac McCarthy angle, so I'm going to have to go back and check that out. Um, but I think people will definitely be talking about this series for some time. Don't miss it. Go pick it up and tell your LCS you want six hands too. Um, Ram, six thanks fingers. very much. Six, uh, but if you want to take six copies of one hand, I will not complain. I, I hybrided it. Sorry about that. Um, well, Ram, thanks so much for hanging out with me on the show today. I, I really Pleasure. enjoyed it. All right. Yeah, yeah, me too. Well, this is Byron O'Neill on behalf of all of us at Comic Book Yeti. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Take care, everybody. This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptid Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. 
It lets us know how we are doing, and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now 